Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Ball Film Podcast. Uh, after a very successful first episode, we have brought some radio veterans from uh, Ball Film Writing. We've brought him back after saying that he was gone. We have Misha Alexander back in the building. To introduce Misha, we can use his Twitter bio, which says theatre and performance student at the University of Warwick, film editor and art slash news journalist for the Ball. He slash him, bisexual icon, and as tall a man as any is in Illyria. I hope I pronounced that correctly. How are you doing today, Misha? I'm good, although I've just realized since I've now graduated, I may have to update my Twitter bio. Well, that's the exact purpose of this introduction. What, is it to uh, guilt trip me into changing it? I'm not allowed to leave my degree behind. (laughs) Well, I mean, it it offers a good way for the writers to make sure that their Twitter bio is as up-to-date as it can be. Uh, I suppose, Don, by definition, your Twitter bio is as up-to-date as it can be because it's just spanning time. Yeah, and as will always be up-to-date, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't I can't picture a time where that won't be up-to-date. So how, <laughs> how are you, Don? I'm very good, thank you. That's good. So today, uh, what we're going to talk about, um, well, obviously, we're going to talk about initially a film that uh, the three of us have watched recently. This will be uh, a regular segment just to give you uh, at home kind of an idea of what we watch uh, when uh, we don't have a, a podcast topic in mind, when we don't have necessarily have a purpose in watching something. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, The Five Bloods, the latest Spike Lee film, and Spike Lee's filmography in general, his style as the director, and what we think of him and his messages and his films. So, um, Misha, if you'd like to start us off, uh, what's a film that you've watched recently that you'd like to talk about? So, I recently rewatched the Adam McKay 2018 uh, drama slash black comedy biopic Vice, starring Christian Bale and Amy Adams, and discussing the like and legacy of American Vice President Dick Cheney. And this is the second time I'm watching a film since it was originally in cinemas back in 2018. And my main criticism still stands of it, that whilst it goes into great detail about what um, what Dick Cheney actually did during his career, it offers very little in terms of explanation as to motive. Yeah. It offers very little in regards to what Dick Cheney actually wanted as an individual or why he wanted to do such indicatively cool things, focusing more on wanting the audience to understand this person, even though its approach of hammering it home and essentially telling you the audience that they're stupid if they don't understand it because they instead choose to follow popular media and really shaming the audience for that when it's really not as far-fetched or ununderstandable as something that is as complicated as his previous film, The Big Short. And so it does get on your nerves for a while and some of the more meta elements, like they randomly break into a Shakespearean mode of speaking to explain that his desire to become vice president when it really doesn't need to and it's already quite clear from the film it's already saying so it it does have an element of pretentiousness to it and ultimately it's a bit of a it doesn't leave as much of an impact as it clearly is going for and whilst it's entertaining in some regard i don't think it serves as a successful biopic of understanding the person it's trying to go into and it's blatant disdain for its own audience is rather insulting especially in regard to and the case previous low-level comedy brigade of her films um that's it's really interesting that you bring up vice because that's one film i saw it on amazon prime um 
uh, like a month ago. So um, it was one of those things because I've always been a big fan of Christian Bale's work as an actor. Mm. So um, I decided to check it out. And I agree on the most part with um, stylistically, uh, he Adam McKay employs um, the same techniques that he used for The Big Short. And I just don't think they're as effective here as they were for The Big Short. Um, the the meta elements of it. And I'm not sure how much I'd agree necessarily with the um, abject disdain of the audience. Um, maybe that's something I just didn't spot, but definitely I think it has some pretentious uh, pretentiousness to it, even though the performances are all incredible. Uh, Dom, do you have any thoughts on? Um, I remember seeing something about Adam McKay that I think like nails it, is that he was a good filmmaker until he tried to become an important one. Okay. Like, yeah. like, Dead Brothers is like you know a modern masterpiece in my eyes, and um, you know the other guys is great as well. And then The Big Short is good. I do like that film. And then with Vice, it just went. He got a bit too big for his boots, and it seemed like oh, we're doing this. It's like an important story to tell that not a lot of people know, and that was kind of it, really. Um, Christian Bale's good, obviously. I mean, I'm not sure it was like worthy of the Austin on that year. Um, that was kind of a weak year, I think. It was incredibly yeah, weak looking at the Best yeah. Picture nominations. Oh, God, yeah. Green Book winning. <laughs> we could do a whole show about that and what it says about um, <laughs> Oscar's tendency of nominating very sort of liberal depictions of race issues as opposed to actually prominently less mainstream depictions. And that was also the year that Spike Lee's film was up for the Academy Awards. Yeah, yeah Black Klansman was up that year as well. Yeah. Back. Yeah, and um, I think that year really showed that the Oscars just kind of really didn't get it when it came to the um, the race issues and the Oscars so white issues because it felt like they it, well when from from Green Book winning it felt like they were just kind of giving this award out to this film. Um, which depicted race being bad without thinking about the film itself and how, you know, since that, that film's kind of been accepted as this white saviour film. And um, I, it, it very much showed this tendency the Academy had to just kind of look at the surfaces of these films and see, oh, they explore a race issue. But when you think, um, I've not seen Black Klansman, but... Uh, a lot of people say that it explored the, the issue in a deeper way. Black Klansman was a then, lot better than Green Book. Black Klansman is very yeah. good. It's not as good as a certain Spike Lee film that you know we will discuss. But yeah, okay. of course. So James, uh, James, what's your film of the week then? Well, I mean, the only film I've actually watched this week is um, *The Five Bloods*, which I watched this morning. But the films that I've been watching recently have all just been me catching up with the cultural icon that is Adam Sandler, <laughs> because. <laughs> Yeah, um, because you know we'd be back to talking about Adam Sandler. <laughs> this literally, like, after watching Uncut Gems and that being his first film, I've I've gone on and I've watched. Um, I think the number I'm on now is 17 of his films, and that embarrassingly means that Adam Sandler is the actor that I've seen most. <laughs> if I count all the individual films that I've seen the actor in, um, I'd like to remind this... you, James, that this show does not offer free therapy. <laughs> well, the thing was, yeah, friends, friends have been like talking to me, slightly concerned about the state. One of them said I was going to have Adam Sandler burnout uh, was the phrase that they used. Um, and the thing is, is what I absolutely love about this exploration of Adam Sandler's films 
is one, the fact that like you can play Adam Sandler bingo very comfortably with most of his films and put things like um, Jackie Sandler cameo, Steve Buscemi cameo. Uh, he's in trouble. He owes money to someone. He plays a deadbeat husband or uh, dad, like whole loads of these tropes that just happen constantly in his films. And Uncut Gems is actually no exception when it comes to this. Uncut Gems uses so many of the tropes of Adam Sandler films and is somehow just incredible. Um, we described this, well, we talked about it on the discourse back in the day about how good it is. And I think the way I'd describe it, and it's just anxiety inducing cinema now, would be it's like trying, it's like watching a man who's trying to spin plates who also has no arms because this man Howard is just completely inept with his life. And he's trying to juggle all of these things, like his failing marriage, giving his money back, his gambling addiction, his colonoscopy, and like all of these things just kind of band together at the same time. And it's just a whole cascade of problems that he has, especially in the scene just after he's been beaten up and his girlfriend wants to talk to him and more debt collectors want to talk to him. And he gets the call back from the doctor about the colonoscopy. And you're just sat there like, when is this going to end? Do you want to give him a hug? Yeah, you do. You do, to be honest. And the thing is, is like he plays a complete asshole in that film. He's not a likable guy, but you still want to give him that hug. He just needs. He just needs a nap. And by the end, to be fair, he does get one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is true. Um, Don, what have you been watching uh, recently? Any film that you specifically um, want to talk about? Well, the other day I watched a film called Desert Hearts, which is like a film that. Like within like the first five minutes, I think I just fell in love with it. Uh, it's directed by uh, Donna Deitch. It was made in like the eighties, and basically, this woman called Vivian goes to Reno to spend a specific amount of time there so that she can get a divorce from her husband. And while she's there, she falls in love with another woman called Kay, and it's just like this beautiful uh, romance. But what's I think is quite interesting about it is that it's kind of a happy one. Usually, when you have kind of these. Um, like LGBT romances, they usually kind of end in like disaster or an unhappy moment. And Donna Deitch kind of says, unlike the interviews on like the special features of the DVD, she was saying how she was kind of fed up with seeing films where the other end with like uh, like murder or they get with a man at the end. Whereas this doesn't do that, and that was really nice. It, yeah, it's shot by Robert Eldwood, and it's just beautiful to look at. Um, what did you say the name was? Uh, Desert Hearts. Desert Hearts, okay. It's, uh, that sounds, yeah, that sounds like more ideal Pride Month viewing than I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, to be honest. <laughs> um, that sounds really interesting. Thank you guys for sharing those, um, those I, I suppose, quote unquote, films of the week or what we've been up to, what we've been watching. Um, so next up, the important film that's come out recently, uh, well, I yeah. say that mainly... Yeah, that's effectively because of COVID. Uh, one, meaning that we're all recording this from our houses, uh, talking through the internet to each other instead of being in the lovely, comfortable, raw studio. And even though the, the chair in my room is very nice, um, the fact that I can uh, bend back on the chair in the raw studio is a massive bonus. But, but um, the good news is it means we can drink live on the show and no one can tell. <laughs> This is also true. Um, I mean, to be fair, in the Raw studio, like who was going to stop you if you just cracked out a bottle of whiskey anyway? But um, I suppose I physically cannot stop you if you decide to do that uh, here, Misha. James, to be fair, if we were in the studio, you still couldn't physically stop me. 
This is also true. <laughs> Well, so, for the fact that The Five Bloods is one of the only films that has actually been released recently, apart from the fact that uh, the, um, on Amazon Prime, the film My Spy did get released there for free. Uh, apart from that, there's not been much. And, and The Wrong Missy on Netflix from Happy Madison. Uh, other than that, and the big Arnold one... Battle on Disney Plus. The point we're getting at is it's the only good thing that's been released. Yes. <laughs> It's the only thing that's probably worth your time out of all of these as a serious sit down and watch the film and you'll you'll get something from it. So um, initially, uh, can we just get some takes in the room? Kind of um, uh, are we thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle about the five bloods? Well, I loved it. I am. I also thought it was very good. Um, I thought it was OK. Um, I think. For me personally, I suppose we'll get into, um, we may as well get into reasons uh, that we uh, did or didn't like it um, in a bit. But for now, just to explain the general plot and premise of it, Dom, as someone who's very big on the film and also from your Twitter feed, I can tell has been indulging in a lot of Spike Lee recently. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give us a little synopsis of what happens? Um, so basically, four uh, friends who fought in Vietnam together, uh, four African-American friends, um, they go back to Vietnam to find gold that they found when they were back in the war and they kind of hid it. Um, they were meant to find it and use it to pay some Vietnamese soldiers, but instead decided that uh, they wanted it and they buried it to hide it. And then they, years in present day, they um, go back to find it and also find the body of their fallen uh, friend, uh, played by Chadwick Boseman, who fought alongside them, who was sort of like their idol at the time in the war. And yeah, it plays, it riffs on other kind of war films while also making a point of how certain stories aren't told um, in the classic Spike Lee fashion. And yeah, it sort of delves into other areas of genre pieces that we'll get into. Um, and yeah, it's really good. Yep. So Misha, as being kind of, it seems, the middle ground in this conversation at the moment between OK, very good and loved it. Uh, can you what what was your um, take on things? Uh, what struck you as being effective that uh, something effective that the film did? Well, as it's for Spike Lee, he brings a lot of background history and context to the film. So the opening sequence is a montage of activists and protests and uh, photos and videos of protests towards the Vietnam War, predominantly led by um, African-American civil rights activists like Angela Davis, and also referencing the kind of militaristic response that the police took to those protests, including killing several activists as a response to it. Can't think of any prominent ways that would be completely <laughs> relevant now, but then throughout the film it also continues to reference in uh, act people who spoke out against it, uh, musicians who came out, and all a, a whole bunch of contextual information towards the way that African Americans were cheated during the 60s and how the war was used as a sort of enticement towards getting civil rights that were never provided. And throughout the film, there's this constant sort of, even though they're coming back now, the same sort of conflict still is created over this love of money that ultimately at the end is very much framed in a, it's all these people of color fighting over this stuff that ultimately 
um, white industrialists and uh, capitalists who the main villain at the end very unsubtly putting on a make America great again hat ultimately <laughs> benefits from and it's just and what's needed is from a position of unity to come and try and break that in the cycle that's also uh, perpetuated by the trauma and PTSD of the veterans who actually fought during those times and I found that as a very a good way of evoking that emotional connection to the characters, all of which are incredibly well acted, by the way. That's the other thing I thought about this film. It was incredibly powerful to watch. And it also doesn't shy away from some of the really brutal elements, especially in the violence, depictions of things like landmines and bullet wounds. And it's ultimately a very sort of... It's a, not exactly gruesome. It's not gory for the sake of it, but it's very realistic and you definitely feel the effects of said violence that it depicts. And ultimately, I thought it was just a very powerful story in that regard. That's, um, yeah, thank you for that. That's uh, a bunch of really good points I think you make there. Um, I think the message that um, the film's going for is obviously like a really important message. Um, and I think it... Um, it was kind of more nuanced in the sense that um, it wasn't as much saying, you know, racism bad as uh, a lot of these films can be accused of just doing at times. Um, well, I mean, the Green Book that we were talking about just before the show, I think, uh, or did we talk about it during the show? I can't remember. Um, that is a really bad, like a good example of a film that just tries to talk about race. And because race is an evocative thing, you know, there are evocative sequences in that film, but the film itself just um, isn't very good and feels quite exploitative in places and feels like it's um, fundamentally just not adding anything to the conversation. Uh, I think with, with this film talking about um, kind of the, the power structures going on in the background. Uh, Chadwick Boseman's character of Storming Norman um, being described as uh, the Five Bloods, uh, their, their Martin Luther King, their Malcolm X, uh, and his guidance, and using that as a frame of just Chadwick Boseman reminding them, like, look, uh, this is a war where we've been promised some sort of movement towards civil rights after this but this was the same as what was promised previously in world war ii and, and just things like that as this idea that the country of america is you know it gets um minorities to fight for them when it's necessary but when it comes for them their time to fight for the minorities um I mean, you use the word necessary in a very casual way there, but let's also remember that the Vietnam War was was completely of course. unnecessary in that regard and was just done as a way of preventing the spread of communism in, a, in an attempt to promote and encourage America. Yeah, basically. It's not a necessary um, war. It's getting I think I should characterize necessary as necessary for their own gain, effectively. Um uh, I think is the best way of describing what that was about. Uh, and then when it comes to actually helping um, black people get uh, rights in America during that time of um, of the civil rights movement, then, you know, the, the, the leaders just turn their back. Um, and I think that that's a really important message out there that it seemed well. And I think even putting the MAGA hat in there and even putting a, tr a clip of um, one of Donald Trump's rallies uh, near the start. Well, I love it about that. It's a complete like 
no fucks given approaches literally in the rest of the time having accurate uh, captions giving time and place and people but in that one they literally just call him president Bernie yeah first. basically they yeah they, they well spike lee i think establishes very early on that he really doesn't care he's giving you a history lesson and it's his history lesson that's going to be delivered um kind of with with his biases and so forth this... yeah definitely i mean to return to uh, black clansman again that film ends by directly comparing the murders and awful stuff done in the 60s by the Ku Klux Klan to the Charlottesville rally in 2017 and directly frames uh, Donald Trump as a continuation of said racism and institutionalized oppression. So he's definitely got an approach of, I am going to give you my complete thoughts and I do not care if you disagree. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that certainly works with his montages um, near the start of, well, at the start of the film, at the very start, starting with Muhammad Ali's famous quote about fighting in Vietnam. And then we, we get into the actual film itself. Uh, and when it's working as an ending montage for, um, for Black Klansmen effectively just kind of saying, look, this race fight just clearly isn't over. We've still got these massive issues today. The thing was, was I found it a bit jarring kind of um, in, in the middle of the film, kind of when you'd suddenly get this photo come up when they're in the middle of just having a conversation. Um, I didn't really understand the necessity of that, of saying, like, this person was real, by the way. Um, I, I was kind of more than happy to trust Spike Lee on that, but I did think that was a bit distracting and maybe took away from the elements of the film where it's this kind of heist movie in Vietnam. Are you talking about the photos of violence done towards the Vietnamese people? No, I'm talking about the ones... So there were a couple where... Um, they mentioned a historical figure whose name I don't remember, like... Um, the man who uh, the hurdle jumper, the, that athlete, right, yeah. and and someone else near the start of the film that I can't remember the name of either. I thought that was a bit strange, but um, I suppose the depicting the violence in Vietnam, um, that as well, I think was could you could probably get away with that just about um, putting that in as long as you know the editing's not too jarring, um, which that felt more necessary perhaps than just putting pictures of these random people that, that well, I, random in air quotes, that's possibly not the best word for it, but um, I thought that that at times could possibly take away from the immersion that was intended. Uh, Dom, do you have any thoughts? Um, I mean, it just goes with, like the classic Spike isn't the most filmmakers, which I mean, I don't, I mean, I didn't really have a problem with it. I mean, that's probably just a personal preference. I mean, mainly because I've watched, you know, uh, quite a few of his films, so I'm kind of used to you know his style i mean i've seen countless people say how they do have similar issues um with it I find yeah um, i mean it goes as well with, like there's a, is i think a lot of tonal shifts and you do risk kind of tonal whiplash with it in terms of how many you know the flashbacks and and the going from you know the kind of heist-esque movie to well the opening is sort of like a get together like hangout movie and then it goes into like this heist movie and then it goes into that kind of pressure cooker moment with the minds and then kind of descends into that typical, you know, is this person going to uh, be encompassed by like madness in the jungle? Typical kind of war element, especially Vietnam uh, films. Um, but I think I think he toes the line quite well. I think. I think that the film's a lot stronger when it's talking about the um, 
the history of African-American representation as kind of like war heroes and so forth, rather than when it's trying to be a Vietnam standard war film. I think to me, if someone had said to me, uh, imagine a Spike Lee film where it's set in Vietnam and all of the tropes that just come with war films and all of the tropes that come with a Spike Lee film, I think I would have pictured something similar to The Five Bloods, um, especially when it got to um, the the mind pressure cooker moment that you just talked about. When As soon as that character started walking backwards, I was like, okay, so he's going to step on a mine and everyone's going to get really scared. And yeah, that's well, that's going to happen. And then it did happen and I, I felt a bit, uh, cheated in a sense like uh, okay well done I suppose uh, for just kind of acting on those classic tropes but I think when it's talking more about the themes of yeah of war and the African-American's place in the war uh, it was a lot more effective than its kind of action adventure war side of the film. I have to say though in regards to the um, pressure mind scene I did think it did serve a person and yes it is a popular trope and standard things happen in, in films like that but that doesn't automatically make it bad as well as it's used in an effective way and i certainly thought that added a good degree of tension and paradigm shift within the film itself and so it especially if the scene is heating up as it is with the discussion about gold and you know what they're going to do with it i think the tension's rising anyway and that just adds like an extra moment to it yeah, I suppose yeah. that's true. I think the problem I had with it was specifically how the character just had no real reason to just start walking backwards right. um, to me. Well he, was ang- well, he was angry and frustrated at the entire... I, I, I didn't see why he had to walk backwards so far, and then he blew up, and I was just kind of... Uh, it, it all felt a bit convenient to me um, as, as placement of a scene, uh, but... There we are, I suppose. Um, they, it still did have good moments with the war film throughout, kind of like the final shootout, I thought was very effective. I think what's interesting um, about the way he's filmed the war sequences, especially with the 80s sequence where it shot like, you know, a, a lost 80s action movie that never was, where it, because obviously they name drop like Chuck Norris and like those Rambo movies, where it kind of picks how Hollywood really went back to try and win the war. And I love how those sequences are shot as if that's what it is. My friend uh, said that, I mean, he was text me about it and he said it reminded him of like propaganda-esque films and i think that's a great way of saying it oh yeah um, the portrayal of american militarization is incredibly yeah. frequent i mean hollywood films make deals with the pentagon in order to use military equipment and have the copyright so they can have a discount on using guns and vehicles and uniforms and all that but only if they agree to make the films not too pro anti-militarization <laughs> or not explicitly condemning the american military for anything yeah well that's true and i suppose that's the way hollywood has to work really um yeah yeah but at the same time like why would you make an artistic statement where you could just make money instead in some places with the 80s scenes something very interesting was the fact that no makeup or anti-aging technology was used to the age oh, yeah, the actors. Like all recasting to have a younger actor playing the role. Um, they didn't. I don't think they even did any recasting. I think it's just yeah. No, they did. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was just the same actor looking that age. I thought it was a really effective way of showing the sort of PTSD element, even though it's clearly back then with the change in um camera shot, the ratio, and the color grading. It was still 
the fact that they were still living through it, that that hasn't changed for them. I yeah, they used really to be uh, 15 millimeter was really interesting there, shifting from digital to stock. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I, having um, looked, well, here's a sneak preview for our boar readers. Um, Dom, it's something you talk about in your Lovebirds review is that, you know, Netflix is over reliance on digital camera at times. Yeah. And so to, to actually see that shift, and I suppose um, in the hands of a competent director uh, and who knows how to make something visually interesting as well, uh, that was a welcome change um, from Netflix's usual standard affair. Yeah. Are there any other points that um, either of you want to make about the five well, points? Like quickly, um, what I find interesting about watching it is obviously in 2008, Spike Lee made um, Miracle at St. Anna, which was a war film set in World War II about black soldiers um, in Italy. And I think what's fascinating watching this is how Spike has improved on like that film in terms of how, how he makes a war film. Miracle at St. Anna, it, I like it. It's not great. It's certainly one of his weaker films. And I think um, it's very bloated. It's I think it's, it's even longer than The Five Bloods, but there's so much going on that nothing is really touched upon enough. The action scenes just lack any drama or emotion. And it's like a stark contrast to the five blood where he has, you know, there's elements where he could be a genre director, a genre director here. And, you know, the war scenes are better shots. I think he's kind of balanced his time and his pacing a lot better in this film. Um, and yeah, it's just improved as a director in this kind of genre and area, which I think was really nice to, to see. Yeah. So I think the the main criticism I had was mainly the kind of predictability of certain moments that did take me out of the film and um, away from the message. I I did think at the start with the film, at the start of the film as well, um, with the amount of times that Spike uh, delivered that message of, look, um, we're fighting for a, a country that doesn't necessarily fight for us. Yeah. I think that message was delivered about a good like three <laughs> times throughout the opening scenes. And it did feel a bit heavy handed. It did feel very much like instead of kind of... <laughs> Have you watched the Spike Lee film? It's not exactly yeah, I, I know. known for that subtlety. True. Like, you can, it's not a bad thing to just have filmmakers go, you know what, fuck metaphors, fuck show, don't tell. You're going to learn this lesson and I'm going to teach you it. And I think, I mean, I'm not saying that that's a better or worse way of doing it. I'm just saying that it's certainly effective and certainly using some of the imagery and using some of the words of actual activists at the time, it's certainly a good way of embedding that. Yeah, I suppose this is also true. I just thought that it was, I thought it was a bit excessive um, to not maybe spread that message out across the film. I think something that could have made it a bit more effective in my eyes is if we had, um, Chadwick Boseman's character, Storming Norman, perhaps flashbacks towards him happening kind of more um, more often throughout the film. But um, the film's not really uh, about him. Well, I it's love like about his darling the ones who survived think... their trauma and their PTSD and how they live and rec reconcile all the things they did and the way it changed their worldview. I mean, Chadwick Boseman's character was less, he was less a character in of itself and a way of the the rest of them to understand their own experiences but i think having that surely um if you know when they're going across uh, the jungle again if they're having those flashbacks um with that regularity then um that more i think conveys this point of these people haven't you know like the line at the end of the film says of um 
after you've been through a war, uh, you realize it never really ends. Um, I think that may have conveyed it a bit more effectively. And I think if you spread out um, the use of Chadwick Boseman's character and, um, you know, the, like the speeches as well, then it perhaps wouldn't make that message seem as heavy handed either. I think it could, I think it would deliver the, the message more effectively and potentially as well. Um, if it was more about their kind of struggle and that worldview instead of the last kind of hour of the film going down into standard standard war affair, a uh, standard war film affair, then I think it could be more effective than it is uh, for me personally. But a lot of people seem to be enjoying it anyway. So there we are, I suppose. I will say on the casting of Chadwick Boseman, if I can steal something said by Odie Henderson, who made a terrific review about this film, he kind of says how um, the casting of Chadwick Boseman, obviously, if you look at his career, he's made like loads of films where he plays kind of prolific and iconic uh, black men. He's played uh, James Brown in Get On Up. Uh, Jackie Robinson in 42, Thurman Marshall in Marshall. And obviously, like, he's already, and obviously, you know, in a fictional realm, he's met, he's played, you know, Black Panther. So he's already kind of has this kind of legendary status as this black actor. And I think casting him in as this just perfectly plays with the mythical quality of this, you know, fallen comrade. I think it's genius casting. I think you're right, because, well, he did give off this mythical aura all throughout, um, especially when he'd be referred to. Uh, and I think it was interesting to kind of contrast that when they talked about um, founding fathers at one point, mm, yeah, um, talking about Uncle George Washington. Yeah. And how, you know, George Washington is himself someone who's been uh, mythologized to the hills by the American people. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of yeah. those founding fathers did. All of the founding fathers. Yeah. It, um, it's this myth that once someone said it in Senate House, everyone realized it was this brilliant weapon to um, really allow patriotism to come out of the American people, as if you refer to the people who, quote unquote, gave them their freedom, uh, because obviously the Declaration of Independence uh, didn't really do much for the rights of women or slaves at the time. Uh, and in a similar way, you get that kind of mythic quality um, from the Five Bloods, uh, their reverence for... Yeah. yeah, yeah, that the sense that they're kind of mythologizing Chadwick Boseman's character, Stormin Norman. Um, I think the name, the name itself, the fact that they've given him that nickname yeah. as well really adds to it as well i thought he was definitely i think my personal highlight from the entire film and even though like his ending scene um was uh, a little bit cliched um with how how his demise actually happened um the rest of it i thought was really good throughout um i just kind of would have liked a bit more of it spread out a bit more evenly if i could just correct myself it was thurgood marshall not thurman marshall i said the wrong Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, Dara Linda as well, talking performances, is just astonishing in it. The two monologues he presents towards the camera, you know, the typical Spike Lee shot of the characters looking directly down the lens, reading your soul, is so good. And I've kind of, this, the line when he says, uh, I will choose uh, when and how I die, and the camera just follows his arm up to his fist, I think is such a powerful moment. And it just hasn't left my like brain since I saw it last week. It was, a, it was a definitely powerful moment. And kind of went through... I think he accepted his fate at the end, just but I mean, I, I guess we're going into spoiler territory now. But at the end, he in refusing to give up the gold and refusing yeah. to give up 
his friends, even though at that point he had left them behind, he was choosing his own fate and regard. And I thought that was a really nice redemptive moment. Yeah, and I kind of love how when he goes on into the jungle, like usually these films have that sort of, oh, is he going to become mad and the madness going to consume him? But I think what's interesting here is it hints at that, but instead it kind of comes a moment of enlightenment instead. And I think that was a really nice play on the typical tropes of, you know, a film of this kind true okay so if we now move on from the five bloods into more spike lee's general filmography um i will admit that uh when it comes to watching spike lee films i'm not uh i've, I've not actually seen many of them i think in fact the only one i've seen is do the right thing which while it can definitely be argued that that's his best film uh I, there's still just such a wide range to his filmography um that well that we're going to talk about now <laughs> so um i suppose we may as well start off with do the right thing um because that's just uh so unbelievably iconic um so do either of you want to give us a brief synopsis okay so um on the hottest day of the summer um kind of in the in a brooklyn neighborhood um the tensions kind of reach boiling points um mookie played by spike lee is works for sal's pizzeria and he's a delivery boy and, you know, Sal isn't, you know, the most uh, not racist character. He is kind of has those underlines. There's a, there's an astonishing kind of scene where John Turturro's character just make, just says a bunch of slurs as the camera kind of, he's looking at the lens again, a classic Spike Lee shot, where he's just spouting like slurs and, you know, bigoted comments. Um, and this is kind of the feeling between Sal's pizzeria and the neighborhood. There's a great bit from Radio Rahim, who um, goes and, no, not Radio Rahim, um, one of the other characters, I can't remember his name, but he kind of asks why there's no, you know, black people on the walls. You know, all your kind of customers are black people, but you have no, you have no kind of care or respect for black people and this specific neighborhood and don't kind of take their wishes on board. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like this, except this day, you can literally feel the heat coming off the screen. Um, Public Enemy are on the soundtrack. And when the, you know, Towards the end, are we are we doing spoilers? I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's a very old film. We might as well. And Radio Rahim is um, killed by a policeman, and kind of um, the neighbourhood gets rightfully angry. And Mookie picks up um, a bin and throws it through Sal's window, um, and kind of destroys the property. And then you know the film kind of ends with uh, Mookie going back to Sal, asking for his money for you know doing his job, and then the film kind of ends. Um, it's a masterpiece. It's one of the most important films, I think, American films ever, possibly. Um, it's certainly if the day ever came when someone asked me for my sight and sound top 10, it's definitely in there. That would definitely make the cut. Yeah, I think it's like excellently um, paced as a film as well. And um, I like the framing, the narrative framing of um, just having it all um, in this one day yeah. as well. And the cast of characters that you have, um, the ensemble cast is exceptional as well. Uh, one of my favorites has to be Samuel L. Jackson's character, yeah. uh, just manning the radio uh, before he was famous as well. But still, yeah. it's that Samuel L. Jackson charisma that you'd expect from his performance just there before it was before it was known to the wider public as well. Yeah. I, I, I again would agree. Um, I've not seen it in a couple of years now, but I think if I went back to it, I would probably agree on using the term masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, I think I would just about allow that. <laughs> um, of course, famously, it didn't win Best Picture, which Spike Lee... Which is insane. 
What, yeah. What won that year? Uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Oh. Spike Lee was not happy about Driving Miss Daisy winning. No, uh, in the piece I wrote about Spike Lee, uh, which will that be on the website when this goes up? Uh, yeah, I'll make sure it is. Uh, yeah, I talk about that briefly. That's, yeah, it's that... just an unfortunate coincidence that just happened for that to happen again for 2018. Yeah, he was rightfully angry why he stormed out. Like it's understandable. Like history repeated itself again. And yeah, I was <laughs> I was on that. Green Book was terrible. Yeah. Green Book was one of the, like I think it's up there with Paul Haggis's Crash as like some of the least deserving films yeah. to win Best Picture. I don't um, even like agrees that it didn't deserve Best Picture. He's come out and said that now. Like, yeah, it's not very good. Well, Peter Farelli has made. I think I made this point last week. Is uh, you can see how much he absolutely cares about the issues in his films for the fact that I can't find any quote from him uh, regarding Black Lives Matter at the moment, which. <laughs> It's a little bit concerning. Yeah, um, but it's very telling in that regard. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not sure. I think Spike Lee has this kind of issue um, as a person where sometimes he can come across as quite self-important yeah. rather than necessarily caring for um, the movement more than anything else. Because I think that I'm not sure how much I agree with uh, his gesture of trying to storm out of the Oscars for um the green book because i think as much as it as as much as it could well have been him protesting um this white savior film winning it also kind of looks like wow wow why didn't i win um <laughs> i i agree it has a bit of an object problem in that regard but i think what it then also has is that it's in a sort of immediate this is not okay it's the fact that it's not something that he just waits around and go for on Twitter. So the film can still have its moment. So it can still have the glory and the prestige of that, uh, of the ceremony. It immediately draws that attention and it immediately makes people think about it. So it does have that going for it. Yeah. Um, so, well, Joel last week gave a really good description of what makes something, you know, that white savior film. Um, so if anyone is wanting more information about that issue, then, um, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that podcast. And so, um, Dom, uh, are there any other films specifically uh, from Spike Lee's filmography that you'd like to talk about? Um, Bamboozled is one that literally is rarely kind of discussed. I'm, I mean, the fact that Criterion released um, on Blu-ray within the last year hopefully means more people will now watch it and discover it. But at the time, it was one of those typical kind of satirical films that people will look at and go, oh, this is too over the top or, you know, thinks it you know, breaches over from satirical to being what it's trying to make fun of. I disagree. I think in hindsight, we have the luxury of looking back going, oh no, what he was saying was completely accurate and worth saying. It's a very I think, uncomfortable film for a lot of people to watch the way it kind of depicts how the entertainment industry has kind of taken, you know, black people and iconography and just completely, you know, misunderstood it and exploited it. Um, it's, there's a really shocking montage towards the end when it just kind of shows the history of entertainment doing this and it is really like oh you know and it's ingrained in you know the, the work and the industry and society kind of because of that um if, if you don't know the plot it's basically this um black writer played by marlon wayans is he never gets any of his pictures put on air so he decides to pitch a modern day minstrel show and obviously this, the um, the network are like, that's a great idea. And it becomes this smash hit. Like it's insane. Everyone's watching it. Um, everyone in the audience is like a white person and they're all doing blackface in the audience. Mm. And it's kind of like a really uncomfortable but kind of crucial film 
um, it was shot using like it was shot using early digital when like filmmakers used to play about with like you know handy cams and whatnot, and, um, and that kind of adds to the urgency and just the you know uncomfortable nature of it. But it's it's a crucial film and it's really good. Um, I think it will. It, I think it's one of his best, easily like top three for me at least. Um, yeah, if you can find it, watch it. <laughs> I've uh, had to. Well, I mean, I did confess that I've only seen *The Five Bloods* and um, and do the right thing. So uh, that will definitely be added to my watch list. Thank you very much for that recommendation, uh, Misha. Is there any specific Spike Lee films that you'd like to uh, shine a light on and talk about? I feel really guilty now because I have seen not that much Spike Lee. The only other one, I mean, that's something I definitely want to rectify. But after, aside from the Five Bloods, the only other one I saw was um, Black Klansman from 2018. So I'm happy to talk about that a bit more. About uh, what I found interesting about that was not just the plot itself, which had that sort of blend of, you know, intense politics at the time, but also had a a bit of a comedic undertones at times, but in a sort of very dark and bleak way. But the way it sort of very much incorporated history regarding activism and culture of African-American at the time. How would just pause movie and, oh, here's this speech from this activist or Who, here's this conversation about black exploitation movies of the era and just uh, use a film as a way of educating people about these topics in a way that was not furthering the plot, but was definitely meant to have an impact on the audiences themselves and continue this culture of the conversation around well the african-american culture at the time and so i thought that it was very appreciative in that regard and it's definitely something that in regard to the style i like the very sort of forward brechtian elements where it's definitely more about making the audience understand what this has meaning of and not just separating it as a piece of entertainment but as a piece of political messaging i'm always in favor of works to do that and try and do and end up doing it really well and so it's definitely something i feel guilty they haven't seen more of his work and definitely something i should rectify over the next week or so i can recommend more if you'd like <laughs> oh yeah go for it, it. you know it. black Hansman, he made a film called chirac and kind of my issue with black Hansman kind of stems from it being the first film immediately after chirac where um chirac is basically it literally begins with uh the words this is an emergency this is an emergency flashing on the screen like a siren and that's kind of urgent energy that is maintained throughout the entire film. It's a reworking of uh, the Greek play uh, Lysistrata. Mm -hmm. So the entire film, all the dialogues in verse, and basically about the gang violence in uh, Chicago, uh, nicknamed Chirac. And basically uh, the women of the city decide to go on a sex strike um, until the men put down their guns. It was very controversial when it came out in 2015. Uh, people thought like he was making fun of like the issue in Chicago when I don't think he was, um, because like it wasn't really seen by anyone because it just wasn't. Um, I don't think people wanted the controversy, um, and it was also Amazon's first film they made. Uh, so they didn't really know what they were doing like in terms of release. It is on Amazon Prime now um, if you want to watch it, but it's a really powerful and classic kind of like in your face firing in all cylinders at work samuel L. jackson plays the greek chorus of it um, and really fun uh nick cannon is in it wesley snipes is in it uh, tiana paris is in it and jennifer hudson and angela bassett and john cusack so it's a stacked cast oh wow yeah it's and he also did a really good biopic so i've heard of um uh malcolm x as well oh, malcolm x is like an epic on just so many levels 
um, the opening of course is the, you know I can only imagine watching like that in the cinema in America somewhere where he burned the American flag before an X as the speech saying um, you know I charge the white man with being the greatest criminal on the planet um, you know it's insanely powerful that opening and I can only imagine watching that in an American cinema and seeing the reaction to their flag being burned I think that would be quite a reaction yeah, um, yeah, the flag. yeah it's, it's a long film it's over three hours it's like a solid three and a half hour film but it's it's worth it it's really good Mal- uh, Denzel Washington as Malcolm X is just the most insane performance um, probably his best performance in a you know career that spans many of them um, insanely he didn't win best actor for that uh, Al Pacino for Center of Woman beat him which is very strange um, but yeah Malcolm X is, is astonishing I suppose the one thing, the one film that I can certainly say from his filmography that I'm definitely going to avoid is his old boy remake. And the more I hear about that film and also about Spike Lee's filmography in general, I just wonder, like, why did he make it? I think it might have been a case of, like, one for you, one for me, I think. From the studio that he was working with. His next film after old boy, uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus, to fund that, he had to actually crowdsource it. Oh, wow. Oh, I, I don't know. Which that's a wildly interesting film. It's available on the streaming service Canopy. If anyone has that, but it's really hard to find anywhere else. It's basically a uh, uh, reworking of, uh, I believe, Gander and Hess, the black exploitation film. Um, it's kind of a reworking of that film. Um, that sounds really uh, interesting. For those of you, I suppose another recommendation just to make is uh, the original Old Boy. Um, the Korean version is very good, and um, I think. Something interesting about Old Boy, I suppose, with relation to the themes that Spike Lee talks about. The one link I can think of is I was listening to um, an Akala interview the other day, Akala being this big um, uh, scholar, uh, rapper and poet as well, who talks a lot about racism in the UK specifically. And I'd recommend his work for people um, who are unaware. Um, talking about how Korean brutalism as, uh, you know, and the revenge film specifically, they're so violent, but people don't necessarily see um, Korea and South Korea specifically as this violent culture. Whereas on the other hand, when you think of um, uh, hip hop music, grime music that originates um, from black culture, well, predominantly black cultures, um, we suddenly see it as violent, which um, I think is, uh, you know, one of those interesting parallels of the racism you no- don't necessarily see within our system. Interesting. Yep. Um, and so that pretty much wraps it up for the podcast this week. Ooh, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> uh, thank you to Dom and thank you to Misha for both coming back onto the podcast. And I hope to have you guys here in future. No, talking thank you, thank you. about back. whatever's relevant at the time um i don't know what we're going to talk about next week uh we'll we'll find something i'm sure but thank you very much for this conversation it's been very good i love talking about the film with you uh there are some very interesting initially think of as well so thank you very much for that and i'll see you all next week okay thank you for having us thanks bye